Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. In 2003, private first class Jessica Lynch was injured when her Humvee flipped, breaking her leg and resulting in her capture by Iraqi forces who took her to a hospital for treatment. Her location was discovered and, after a delay so the camera crews were able to film the operation, Green Berets, Army Rangers, Special Operation Airborne and Delta Force launched a daring nighttime raid on the hospital, rescuing Lynch. On that day, U.S. tanks rolled into Baghdad, shelled the Palestine Hotel, and killed two journalists. They also bombed the media outlet Al Jazeera, killing a journalist. By the way, later Lynch would blame the U.S. government for creating a story around her rescue as a part of a Pentagon propaganda effort. What story do you think our media covered? Let's discuss. Welcome, uh, Andy, uh, to our podcast, and we're talking about Project Censored today. And I think when we were chatting before, I didn't know anything about your Project Censored and the, and how long it's been going on. Uh, I mentioned that said let's do a, let's do this podcast to Greg, and he was not only familiar with it, but apparently uh, Michael Permarenti submitted one of his stories to Project Censored years years ago. <laughs> So he's he's in the loop and I'm not, but that's 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 happened more than once. So where are we where are we calling you from? Where are you located right now? I'm based in Winthrop, Washington, which is a little town in rural north central Washington state on the east side of the Cascades. I my sister lives in Winthrop, Washington. No, she lives in Twist. Twist, I, just down the road. Yeah. And I go that's to a Winthrop. small world. Yeah. I, I try to go to Winthrop's Blues Festival whenever I can. So I know yeah. Winthrop very, very well. Well, Andy, yeah, let's give you a little bit of a background. You are the Associate Director of Project Censored. Mm-hmm. And Project Censored is a, a project that every year for, I don't know, has it been 25 years or so? They they take the top 25 stories that they want to highlight that have either been suppressed or distorted or um, should have more traction than than they receive and do a, a publication of those 25, 25 stories. And how long, and you've been running this for what, 12, 13 years? You've been the editor for this? I've been working with the project since around 2006, 2007. Um, and I've been the associate director of the project since about 2012. And the project was actually founded way back in 1976. So we're closing in on 50 years, oh my a golden gosh. anniversary. Um, and the project at that time was fairly unique. Uh, as a newswatch organization, other newswatch organizations um, came onto the scene later. Um, uh, but the project, so the, you know, the media landscape has changed dramatically since the mid to late 1970s uh, in all kinds of ways that we might end up talking about more today. Uh, but one thing that hasn't changed that continues to make project censored distinctive even in the midst of uh, the, even with the uh, uh, arising of other really fantastic Newswatch organizations, uh, the thing that makes us unique, I think, still is Project Censored's focus on hands-on 
uh, training for students, for especially undergraduate college and university students. Um, so the this is the 48th year uh, that Project Censored and students working with the project have been identifying, vetting, and ultimately helping to publicize these important but underreported stories. Um, and so that, you know, we talk today about critical media literacy, um, one of the kind of uh, hallmarks of Project Censored. But uh, I like to quip that uh, Carl Jensen, who founded the project, and students at Sonoma State, who were the first cohorts of Project Censored students, were doing critical media literacy before we had a term for it. Right. And so when you get a story, it you have professors or other people nurturing these students to help them get the story right and send them, get more information from that. And and so your 25 core stories is a collaborative effort by uh, a lot of different media people and academics, but also bringing in young students to support the project. Yeah, right? that's that's exactly right, uh, Pat. Uh, so this year, um, the top 25 stories are called from a from a, a pool of 200 or more candidate stories that we investigated over the past 12 month cycle. Um, 220 students from 12 different college and university campuses contributed, in effect, research in support of that collective effort. And then those stories are reviewed initially by the students and their faculty mentors. And if they pass muster at that level, they're sent forward to us at Project Censored. We review them again if they if they uh, pass that second and third round of evaluation. We post them on the project's website as validated independent news stories, and those validated independent news stories, or VINs as we call them uh, internally, uh, are the candidates for each year's top twenty-five story list. That those candidates uh, are then those candidate stories are then voted on by all the participating campus uh, student and faculty, as well as the project's pool of um, panel of esteemed judges. We have twenty eight media experts who are um, come from a variety of backgrounds and and work experiences. So some of them are media scholars, some of them are former or current uh, editors or journalists themselves. We have a former FCC commissioner who serves on the uh, serves on our jury, and they help us uh, do a final round of evaluation and ultimately rank order the stories uh, for the top twenty five list that we put out each year. So yeah, we've been doing this for forty eight years. This is the thirty first year of the um, actual uh, presentation of the stories in the form of a book. Um, the book is more than the top twenty five. Uh, story list. That's one chapter right. in a six-chapter book, but that's right. kind of the um, crown gem of the of the annual yearbook. And your website's just fantastic. I mean, you have all of these resources for students and for teachers. You have all of your stories are listed. That archive of all of your stories. Oh my gosh! Whoever does your website does a does a great job with it. Well, um, give it give a shout out to our longtime webmaster, a former Project Censored student himself, Adam Armstrong. Um, mm -hmm. who's been with the project uh, even longer than I have, uh, often behind the scenes, keeping our website going. Um, and also Kate Horgan, uh, a recent Project Censored alumna 
who uh, has joined our staff and is helping Adam with um, web website uh, design and social media. So, um, and they're just two members of a of a of a growing team that I feel so honored and uh, uh, honored and encouraged uh, to get to work with. Censored is not really the right word, is it? It's it's not. It's and the mainstream media is not really the right word. It, like you said, who, who has power influence, who benefits from hiding information, and what price of not being, and what's the price of not being informed? I think yeah. that was in your your notes, and that elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, those are those are great questions, and they go to uh, something I think at the core of the critical media literacy that Project Censored advocates, paying close attention to language and how language shapes our understanding of the world. So the project has what we like to think of as a 21st century definition of censorship, but it's actually grounded in, in the original definition that Carl Jensen, the founder of Project Censored, used when he was defining what the project was about. So Jensen defines censorship as, I'll quote directly here, the suppression of information whether purposeful or not, by any method, including bias, omission, underreporting, and self-censorship, that any, any of those that prevent the public from fully understanding or knowing what's happening in society. So there are two things about this definition that I would stress uh, here in a kind of introductory context. One is that censorship takes many forms. And that as we talk about uh, the flow of information in a digital age, uh, where there are global tech companies that play a role in the in the distribution of information, um, we need a 21st century definition of censorship. So it's still important to talk about uh, things like prior restraint, um, the idea that that we have a First Amendment that says that the you know government can't restrict the freedom of the press that matters here, but I think in my experience both in the classroom and in, at public events where Project Censored is 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 engaging in the work we do, a lot of people uh, labor under the assumption uh, a flawed assumption that because we have a First Amendment we don't have censorship in the United States, and I can point to you. In yearbook after yearbook, top 25 stories that are indicative of um, not only kind of classic prior restraint censorship, but also new new 21st century forms of censorship. For instance, what um, Mickey Huff, who's the director of the project, and our colleague Avram Anderson and I refer to as censorship by proxy. So we need a nimble definition of censorship to address the wide ranges, uh, the wide way that information flows or fails to flow in our society. And that brings me to the kind of the second point of that definition, which is about the consequences of it. A lot of definitions of censorship focus on what censorship is, but not what are the consequences of it. And the definition that Carl Jensen uh, kind of brought to the table when he was establishing the project was the idea that the real key when we talk about censorship in whatever guise it takes is that it prevents the public from fully knowing what's happening in its society. And I think that that specification of the focus is crucial to the work that Project Censor does. And I think it's crucial to anyone who cares about kind of 
how news stories are put together and what their consequences are for, say, our politics or our economy or our, in general, our society. You mentioned also uh, that notion of mainstream media, which is a term that we at Project Censored tend to avoid um, <laughs> because I think it obfuscates um, the dynamics that we're talking about. So part of critical media literacy is understanding patterns of ownership and how ownership patterns um, potentially shape content, right? Um, right? And so we know since uh, the publication of Ben Bagdikian's book, Media Monopoly, in the early 80s, we've known about the concentration of media ownership, especially as it affects um, news outlets and journalism. Um, and right now, most of the media that we consume, not just journalism, but as Begdikian pointed out, across the board, like magazines, movies, television, radio, music recordings, are, are owned and run by corporate outlets. And so it's important, I think, to not cede the ground of what's mainstream to corporate entities, right? That's an effort on their part to have those two be roughly equivalent. Um, but the idea that a corporate view of the world is a mainstream view that reflects ordinary everyday people's interests and concerns is I think part of a kind of, part of the way that news functions in a sort of propagandistic uh, way. Um, so we, we contest that terminology at Project Censored and we try to be open about why these different word choices matter. So, Greg, I want to bring you into this conversation. Uh, I should have, um, Andy, I should have sent you a link to Greg's work. Greg does, Greg's a pol prolific writer uh, and uh, is editor of Marxist Leninist Today, and he has a blog, and he uh, once a month, is it once a month, Greg, or once every three weeks, you do a Whenever I write something. <laughs> That's, right. Whenever I get something done. Right. Uh, and you know, well, uh, I, I have to just go to back to what you said, Pat. I, I, I'm, I'm old like you. And uh, like you, I was jarred by this concept of censorship. When I see the word, I think of censorship more in terms of when I was young and what that meant. Now we have a different era. Uh, it means something different. I think Andy really clarifies that. But I think one of the terms that now you hear again and again, which is new to us old timers, is disinformation. It's always yeah. been there, but I think now, since uh, there's been this explosion of of, of new media beyond uh, ABC, NBC, CBS that we grew up with, uh, uh, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, et cetera, but there's an enormous explosion of different media outlets. With that, the, the people in power now charge all these other things with spreading disinformation as if they did not spread disinformation all along, but it's not misinformation so much as disinformation, but it does create a whole host of new issues because they want to control it now. And they're using this concept of disinformation uh, uh, to do that. An example from your book would be Russiagate. I mean, I think, mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say that you uh, agree with some other cutting edge critics that Russiagate was essentially disinformation. It was really an attempt to mislead and misdirect attention from a problem. Uh, is that caused issues with 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 uh, Project Censored? Uh, this kind of new concept of 
disinformation? Do you get charged with taking sides? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, we're, uh, it's interesting how it works in kind of four-year cycles, Greg, because whatever party is holding political power, uh, we're, the project is probably uh, promoting news coverage that cuts against the grain of those official uh, agendas and, and explanations of what's happening in the world. And so, you know, we have been accused in the past of being a liberal or a progressive in our political orientation. Um, but a lot of that has to do with who's in power uh, uh, politically at the time. Um, on disinformation and misinformation, it's important, I think, that distinction is is relatively new, or maybe it's become more prominent. Um, and I think it's a useful distinction. Um, the idea behind talk distinguishing between the two is that misinformation might be, uh, imagine I'm transmitting um, content. Um, maybe I am mistaken and in error about a matter of fact. Then I would be guilty, perhaps, of misinforming the public. But if I'm intentionally and willfully um, misinforming my readers, the public, then that is what we label as disinformation, right? And that's the distinction. It, it goes to um, cases where there's evidence of intentionality, which, of course, is a somewhat murky area. Um, my training is as a, my training and background is in sociology, and questions of intentionality are core to interpretation of social action, and not always cut and dry. I'm alert to that. But just one example, perhaps, of how that that notion of disinformation is at work. One of our top stories this year um, is a, is about a study that exposes how electrical utilities used. Uh, a disinformation campaign to 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 protect themselves and to continue to reap profits in spite of uh, evidence that electric utilities are contributing to to the climate crisis, um, and so this this story was reported uh, by journalists for the Atlantic and also for Grist, based on. Um, a scientific report published in the Environmental Research Letters, and basically they looked at documents from the electric industry from 1968 to 2019, so a span of decades there. Um, and what they found was that in order for uh, the electrical industry and its front organizations to pursue their own financial gains, they consistently over those decades contributed to climate denial raising doubt about climate science, encouraging delays in climate policy, and that this was part of an active disinformation campaign. And I use that term carefully and advisedly here because the documents that the researchers um, examined um, showed that scientists within, for instance, um, the Edison Electric Institute, the Electric Power Research Institute, they knew that their industry was contributing to the climate crisis, but they actively chose to mislead the public about it. So a case in point of disinformation. And this it's worth noting then that disinformation is something when we talk about kind of the power of news to shape our understanding of the world, um, it's not just that government 
agencies are trying to manipulate the news to promote their agendas and policies. But of course, corporate entities are doing the same. And this is a story that's a case in point of, of that sort. Yeah, that's with the... the new with the new technologies that that's become more and more uh, focused on or directed towards bots and things like that. So much mm -hmm. of the distraction from the reality, like Russiagate, is refocused on bots as though mm -hmm. there is an active disinformation campaign that just overwhelms everything. And it, it kind of casts a shadow over the, the uh, alternative media. Um, uh, and I, I wonder how you think about that. How do you think about, do you think that alternative media has dumbed people down, uh, made them more vulnerable to disinformation? Or in my view, it's done just the opposite. It's broken away from the old corporate media monopoly. But what, what are your views? What do you, what do you yeah. draw from your research? I think there are two points I would make about this, and one is on the, in effect, the supply side of the question, and the other is on the demand side. Um, so on the supply side, I would say, yes, the rise of independent media, alternative media, whatever we choose to call them, facilitated in part by the development of the internet and the increasing access that the internet makes possible, has been, I think, revolutionary, right? I think a free and open internet is as revolutionary as, say, the Gutenberg printing press was in an earlier era, if we're talking about transformation of media and accessibility of uh, information to a general public. Um, but of course, a free and open internet is part of, a, you know, that's a contested, that's a contested field. Um, it's not guaranteed. Um, we know that there is a lot of, in effect, algorithmic censoring of content online. Um, and one of the things that I've written about in the past is the idea that these big tech companies, so Meta, uh, which owns uh, Facebook, owns and operates Facebook and Instagram and Microsoft and Google, these big tech platforms now play a, a massive role in the distribution, the circulation of in, in information, right? Um, but they have zero commitment to journalistic ethics. They don't think of themselves as journalistic entities, and they aren't committed to the kind of code of ethics that the Society of Professional Journalists uh, advocates. So to these, to these big platforms, news journalism is just another form of content that profits can be made from. And that's problematic if you care, uh, if you believe that a well-informed public is part and parcel of uh, a robust, sustainable democracy because now news journalism is just another commodity, another uh, eye attention, eye grabbing, attention grabbing, um, you know, content to be circulated. So one of the things that I've advocated in the past, and I think Project Censored uh, tries to alert people to, is the idea of being, uh, that media literacy includes algorithmic literacy. Understanding that when you use a search engine to look for information, it, different search engines will give you different returns of information because they rely on different algorithms. We don't have access to those algorithms. They are considered proprietary, uh, proprietary uh, materials by the companies that own and use them. 
There have been a number of lawsuits, class action lawsuits, for instance, by YouTube content creators to try to get Meta to reveal, if not publicly, to, to at least an independent third party, what the YouTube algorithm, uh, how it works. Um, courts have consistently decided in favor of the big corporations in those cases. Uh, but the content creators uh, have a, a legitimate case because they can show, for instance, that content that goes against the grain, that questions the status quo, is often shadow banned. Um, it is often demonetized. It is often basically just kind of routed on an alternative track where it's very hard to come across it unless you're actively seeking it out. Now, that's not that kind of uh, uh, censorship by proxy doesn't look like our old fashioned conceptions of censorship where an editor says, I won't run that story. It's too red. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Or whatever. Or a government official says you can't run that story. It violates national security interests. In this case, when there are algorithms involved, the gatekeepers aren't even human per se. Right. So I mentioned, I come from the field of sociology. Some of the most famous early studies in news uh, occurred in the 1950s when, when people went and studied what were the news editors at local newspapers? How were they making decisions about the stories that came over the news wire? They, the editor makes a decision. The story comes over the wire and the news editor tries has to decide, am I going to run that story in tomorrow's edition of the newspaper or not? In the 1950s, uh, a sociologist or someone else with interest in those kind of processes could hope to gain permission and observe those processes and then report back in, say, a, a sociological report about what they had learned. Today, that's not possible. We can only study the effects of these algorithms indirectly. Um, and we do that at Project Censored, and we're among people who do try to track that. But really what we need is to, is to crack open the magic box and see whether some of these biases that we can document in their effects are baked into the algorithm um, or if they reflect wider biases and prejudice in the society as a whole. On the demand side, the the other problem is like we have more high quality independent journalism i think than we've ever had before mm -hmm. but as mickey huff and i write in the introduction to state of the free press 2022 we also have what's now known as news snacking or the belief that news finds me and this is directly that this news finds me attitude is is a direct consequence of our increasing reliance on social media so the idea is that if I, the news finds me perception is that, well, if I'm, if I'm, you know, on Facebook or if I'm on Instagram or if I'm on Twitter, anything really important will, will find me. It'll come across my social media feed. Now, connecting to what I just said about the power of algorithms to decide what shows up in those feeds, what will find me is what the algorithms deem important. And if I'm interested in things that the algorithm doesn't think I should be interested in, or if they're just things that the algorithm is actively blockading, then some kinds of news won't find me. And this isn't just my opinion. We have, we have uh, you know, careful, careful social scientific research showing 
that people with the news finds me attitude based on their social media use um, uh, tends to overestimate how well informed they are. And they tend actually to have serious lags in understanding. And some of these studies have even linked that up to things like voting behavior or other forms of civic engagement and shown negative consequences. So, so we have problems on both sides of the fence, if you will. I think when we talk about, uh, you know, I, I believe we're in a golden age of independent journalism in the United States. Mm -hmm. But there are serious barriers to people coming across that journalism in the form of algorithmic, uh, uh, you know, throttling of news sources. And then there's a serious problem on that demand side of people are distracted and they're scrolling through stuff when they're waiting in line at the market uh, to pay for their groceries. And if, if there's not demand for high quality journalism, there's little motivation for the people on the production side to, 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 to offer it. And what they'll give us is what Carl Jensen, the founder of Project Censored, talked about his junk food news, right? The latest trends, celebrity scandals, stuff that may, you know, like a bag of potato chips, it may be tasty and entertaining while we're doing it, but later we have a stomach ache and we're still hungry, right? We haven't been nourished as citizens by that kind of news, so. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're, a, we're a nation of Dunner-Kruger. Yeah, Dunning-Kruger yeah. nation, yeah. You know, yeah. so, you know, I... I retired six years ago, and before I got my media through cable news, MSNBC, a couple mm -hmm. of blogs, and I, you know, Frank, I didn't have time to read a book or two a, a week. I didn't have time to yeah. devote to, or to engage with people like Greg and other, you know, have good conversations with people that. And I'm looking at the Russia Gate thing, and I remember when Russia, when the Russia Gate was happening. I was convinced that Hillary lost the election because of these horrible people in mm -hmm. so in Russia. I was convinced that there was a server that was interacting with people. It, it not only was it wrong, everyone knew it was wrong. You know, mm -hmm. it, the people inside knew it wasn't it was all a hoax. Mm -hmm. And when what's so interesting is when Taibi started to report on all of this, and uh, he was attacked by the liberals. He was attacked by, mm -hmm. he, you know, he, he wasn't attacked by the crazies. He was attacked by the liberals. And specifically, the one thing that was so interesting was the State Department having all of these bots that they would use as a, a in the Middle East when something happened. Now, Obama blew up a hospital. And all of a sudden, all of these bots were coming in, infiltrating the local news. That was run by our State Department, and and they 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 you know Taibbi you know reported on that. The idea that the suppression of news was controlled by agencies that were set to look at disinformation, but all it was was just a way of the powerful controlling what information came came to yeah. people. It and we the, and you, it and is you can the biggest story. And you wrote about that. It's a huge story. Yeah. And what do people think about it now? If you were to ask people, they they still believe that you know the Russians stole everything and Hillary was screwed by the, you know, by these horrible Soviets or whatever they call yeah. now. Right. So. Right. When in fact, as Project Censored reported and other other independent news outlets also did, like part of that was involved backroom deals in the DNC. Right? Yes. Yes. Um, and so that's not good uh, for our democracy. 
Um, and you've, and, you know, I feel like, you know, some people will say, some people will cling to the bad Russians narrative and not look at, say, you know, vulnerable voting systems in the U.S., uh, restriction of voting rights in the U.S. as factors that shape the electoral outcomes as well. Um, and But other people will just be cynical, and I think cynical uh, response and say, of course, it's all crooked, right? And there's reason to be cynic, cynical, but I think cynicism is a luxury we cannot afford right now, right? Um, because that's, I think, exactly what conservative forces want is a, a, a public that is disengaged because they believe the processes are ultimately broken. And news plays a role in that because journalists are, uh, I think, by uh, professional training, if not personal disposition, inclined to look for what doesn't work, right, for what's failing. And so... Uh, the frame of most news stories is a frame of what went wrong and who's to blame. Um, and one thing we often, you know, a category of news that is, I think, systematically suppressed by the corporate news media is what's known as solutions journalism. It's either suppressed or it's co-opted in a way that makes it less meaningful, less significant. Solutions journalism is something that has been championed here in the United States by Yes Magazine, based uh, over the mountain range in Seattle, uh, over the mountain range from me in Seattle. Um, there's also now the Solutions Journalism Tracker, which is an online resource that people can tap into. And the core idea of solutions journalism is that um, we can have a robust journalism a serious journalism that doesn't simply point out what's wrong, but also alerts people to, informs the public about how people are coming together to create solutions to those problems. And as a sociologist, this makes imminent sense to me, right? If we're interested in social change, but we never tell stories of people solving problems, the consequences of that kind of slant in reporting is that people think problems are unsolvable or people come to believe that they have no role to play in the solution. And so we need solutions journalism. We need to support solutions journalism. And again, I'm not advocating for, uh, you know, throwing objectivity completely out the window, but we can talk about standpoint and talk about there is a role in journalism for certain kinds of advocacy that don't violate say, a code of ethics that says that the journalist's primary job is to seek truth and report it, because it's also an ethical component of journalism to try to minimize harm, right, and to act independently. And so these, so solutions journalism, I think, you know, stories like the extent to which uh, a couple years ago, one of our top 25 stories was about the extent of wildcat strikes across the country, unauthorized non-union workers going on strike in response to the work pressures of not only a capitalist economy, but a capitalist economy in the context of a global pandemic. Um, this year, we have a story that I would consider an example of solutions journalism in our top 10, uh, how unions won more than 70% of their elections in 2022, oh, yeah. and how those victories are being driven by workers of color, right? There's been some talk in the corporate news media about unionization efforts because big companies like Starbucks um, 
and Amazon and now Tesla are facing serious uh, unionization efforts from within their workforces. Um, but the idea that the that overall the labor movement in the U.S. right now is being bolstered by workers of color is an aspect of that story that the corporate media have simply ignored. Yeah. Um, I, know, I would uh, I would appreciate it if you wouldn't that. bring up Tesla. I just bought a Tesla and I'm having horrible <laughs> cognitive dissonance that's just beyond. The, well, it, I mean, I think I, I'll just freestyle for a moment here and express some personal opinions that aren't necessarily those of the project. But we, you know, we 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 associate Tesla and Elon Musk, of course, Um but Musk gets far too much credit, not only for being an advocate of free speech, which I don't think he actually is, right, right. Um, uh, and also he gets far too much credit for the the technology and the 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 the, the Tesla automobile. Um, right. With right. you know, he gets credit as being like the inventor of that. But um, people interested in, in critically inclined folks can can dig and find good reporting to show that that's um, part of the Elon Musk uh, image uh, and spin campaign and less to do with actual innovation and maybe yeah. even smarts. I, 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 uh, I agree with that. I have to put a plug in here because you mentioned a story that I intended to plug and that's uh, Mike Elk's uh, article that you referred yes. to, number six in your list. Uh, just, just coincidentally, I told Pat earlier yesterday I get a an email and uh, uh, Elk, who's a an independent, uh, really uh, poverty stricken labor uh, reporter of of great uh, some talent and also of, uh, he's very enterprising. He just sent out to of, of all the people that he knows how proud he is of being selected for these top 25 i mean it really yeah. is tickled and, and i and i i uh i laud you because because that's helping independent journalism in a very important way because he doesn't have really any kind of support system this is a dedication on his part yeah i mean people if you're not already following mike elk's payday report and you're at all interested in labor issues the payday report is an invaluable resource and you're quite right greg uh i don't know how mike does it um, he's certainly someone who is deserving of support when we talk about, you know, we talk at Project Censored about we that term I rattled off earlier, validated independent news stories. And that first word validated is important because part of what we're trying to do at the project is cultivate public awareness of and support for high quality independent journalism. We're trying to validate that journalism, right? Um, and Mike Elk and the Payday Report, big, big shout out to them. Um, they are in this year's book, uh, those wildcat strikes that I was referring to a moment ago, um, uh, when that wave of wildcat strikes was taking place across the country, no one was reporting on those wildcat strikes and connecting the dots between them better than Mike Elk and the Payday Report. Um, okay. There were you when we researched the Wildcat Strike report for the yearbook a couple years ago. Um, what we found was you could find isolated coverage in regional and city newspapers of particular Wildcat strikes. So it's not as if it was absent altogether from the from the establishment press. If you looked, you could find instances of it. But Mike Elk and the Payday Report 
were the only outlet I'm aware of that was looking at all those at some level isolated strikes and seeing the bigger picture. And isn't that what journalism is supposed to do for us, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that part of what a, a, a journalism that serves the public interest is supposed to do? Um, so otherwise these events were isolated and perhaps even for the workers themselves, they may not, they may not have known except through informal networks that, hey, something like this is happening over there too and in, across the country. Um, and Mike Elk in the Payday Reports reporting on the, he had like the, I forget what he called it. It was like the Wildcat Strike Tracker or something. <laughs> and it was literally a map. You could go and you could see little flashing points of red on a map of the entire country, indicating everywhere that in the past, whatever the time frame was, there'd been documented a documented wildcat strike. It was impressive, like it was good visual journalism and it was just good independent journalism. And he was doing something that none of the corporate media at the time, none of the establishment press were touching. Yeah. And again, when we talk about them as corporate media, perhaps it's understandable why that's not a story that the big establishment papers would be eager to cover. Because if we had more evidence of the power of workers when they act together, to transform the quality of work, to transform the workplace, this country might look radically different. Greg, are you in a media desert in uh, Pittsburgh? Do you have a newspaper that you trust that you read every day that's local news? Well, my newspaper's on strike, so I won't read it, I won't buy it. That's Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. And Elk has covered that very, very uh, thoroughly as well. Uh, so yeah, in a sense, I mean, there's a, a, a paper that's now doesn't have a hard copy, uh, the Trib, which was a SCAFE publication. They have an online thing, and uh, there's some of the small weeklies. Uh, there's a renegade woman like Mike Elk. She does a a um, a monthly, which I subscribe to. I double subscribe to to help her out. I mean, there are people out there struggling to get information out, but the good stuff is all from people that are struggling. It's not yeah, from um, people with uh, with the money. You know, but, we're, uh, here's a question. I have a question for 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 Andy. Uh, is this is something I went into and I find very frustrating. Take any of your stories, Mike Elk's story, another one, Russia Gate, whatever. I was on a picket line many years ago, uh, uh, picketing the Pittsburgh Press, I think it was then, because they'd written a number of articles about some union employees about how much money they made their retirements. I mean, they were just rolling in, 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 in money and benefits, et cetera, et cetera. And I had worked that job myself, so I knew it was all BS. So my friend was a union president. He invited me to join the picket line, you know, in case no one showed up. And so he had, he had a good turnout, a lot of workers there. So we're all talking. Of course, the first topic of conversation is how the press has misrepresented these workers. And mm -hmm. we all agreed. So there's a lapse of time, and then they start talking about world events, local events, politics, and so on. And everything these my, my friends and fellow workers are talking about is just establishment mainstream nonsense. Mm -hmm. And I, could, I asked, I said, well, why is it you can understand that they lie about you? <laughs> that the story about you right. is false. Right. That they're not telling the truth about you, which should tell you something but you believe everything else they tell you. And I find that very frustrating. And I find it frustrating because I could take any of these top 25 stories and I'll find 
friends of mine who will say, yeah, 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 that's true. But then they still believe the media and the other things that they tell. How do we get that message through? That there's systematic, there is no such thing as a free press. There is a systematic story that they have. Yeah. It's a fantastic question, Greg. And thank you for posing it and opening it up for us to talk about. I mean, I think one thing is to, and I, I would do this with students of mine in my introduction to sociology classes when we got to the section of the course that dealt with media and journalism. We'd look at news stories and we'd look simply at who are the quoted sources. Who's quoted here? Who's treated as an authority on this topic? Whatever the story is. And for most stories from the establishment press, if you look at who's quoted, it'll depend a little bit on the subject matter of the story. There'll be some variation depending on the subject matter. So if it's a foreign policy story, it'll be, for instance, members of the Cong members of Congress. Uh, if it's a business story, it might be corporate spokespeople. But the common denominator across a bunch of these is they're all official sources. They all represent some government or corporate entity by and large. And with very few exceptions, does kind of establishment reporting on most of the news stories of the day treat ordinary people or workers as being newsworthy at the level of quoted. So we might have news stories that talk about working people, but how often do we have news stories that give voice to working people. Now, the answer to the question will differ dramatically, I think, if you switch from kind of corporate news to independent news, right? When you read the payday report, you'll hear the voices of independent, of actual workers. When you tune into the Real News Network and Max Alvarez, you'll hear workers talking about the East Palestine train derailment and how for years their union was trying to get the brakes on those trains upgraded and modernized, right? But you won't hear those voices by and large in the corporate news media. Maybe, maybe, maybe if it's a longer story and you read all the way to the final paragraphs, you might see some of the uh, more diversity in who's quoted. But the people quoted at the head of the article in the summary lead will by and large all be officials and they will reflect government or corporate worldviews on whatever that issue is. And I could do that in a class period with my students and instead of me telling them the corporate media is biased, the independent press have a more diverse notion of who and what count as newsworthy. I didn't have to lecture them about that. They could look at the they could look at two news stories on the same topic, one from a corporate outlet, one from an independent outlet, and they could see for themselves that that was true. Now, your conversation on the picket line or uh, you know, out in the bar or at dinner or on the ball field, wherever you're hanging out with friends and colleagues, isn't the same as a classroom, and you can't kind of you know, structure a lesson plan the same way I could with my students. But I think there's room to open up those conversations in fairly simple ways. When they start talking about the latest report from Fox News about the border crisis, you can say, who are the sources for that story? Who's Fox turning to to define that problem for us? Does that include any alternative voices? Is there anyone questioning the status quo featured in that report? And you know, I think asking questions is a form of power um, and yeah. and not just of, you know, question authority, but even when we're talking with our family and friends, like asking questions is a way of opening things up. 
Um, yeah. So that's not going to be the only way forward. To, I mean, your question is bigger than I can answer. Uh, you know, either even if I had all day, I'm not sure I could answer that that deep question completely. But I think that's part of an answer, or that's what part of an answer looks like. Um, asking questions: who who's quoted? Who are the sources? Who are journalists attributing the claims to? And when you see that that's a narrow range of persons. It's not a big leap to conclude there might be other perspectives. There might be competing viewpoints that are, in effect, being left out of the frame of this story, right? And so I think I've, that's a lot of, I think, a, the, if we talk about the politics of news, or as Walter Lippmann, the great pioneer of media studies and journalist of the early 20th century, you know, he talked about the news about the news needs to be told. And that's what we're trying to do at Project Censored, right? Get, get, young people and the general public alert to the idea that we can't just accept the news at face value. There's too much at stake for the people producing it. And for us as the people it's being directed at, there's too much at stake for the producers and for us. Um, so we have to not take it at face value. We have to, you know, all my media literacy metaphors, we've got to dig deeper, we've got to dive beneath the surface and see what's the underlying mechanism that's making this story go, right? So, uh, Dr. Roth, sociology professor, I don't know if you were up current with the news today, but uh, it appears that, according to Huffington Post, Florida public schools are now eliminating sociology class <laughs> at 12 state universities. And replacing them with a core class survey, 1986, which is an American founding history of, you know. Yeah. So, so it just one less place for you to go and retire and do adjunct professors. Yeah, I have a colleague uh, who has, a, a, I'm a contributor to uh, a book edited by Steve Masick, Robin Anderson, and Nolan Higdon um, that is about the global, global crackdown on press freedoms and uh, freedom of expression generally. Um, and that book will come out uh, from Rutledge in the spring later this year. Um, and I know that Steve, the first thing he wants to do when the book is out is try to schedule uh, a series of book events in Florida, yeah. <laughs> so that so that the, the those events will be you know picketed, protested, you know, hopefully have the book like banned in Florida or something, right? Um, yeah, I mean you know. What can we say about a state where they've made taken the dictionary off of the library shelves? I guess, you know, because it has definitions of things like sex and penis and other, you know, I read the Bible. actual things, right? Um, yeah, I mean, sociology is always sociology isn't a unified field. It's diverse, like any human enterprise. But the core of sociology, as I understand it, has always been. Uh, against the grain, right? It's questioning, it's about questioning the status quo, about looking at things that we take for granted or treat as, quote, natural, and seeing how they are the result of human action, uh, and, you know, they and that under different conditions, other outcomes arise. Um, and, you know, I think of, um, you know, all the great socio, the kind of the founding figures of sociology were all in one way or another asking questions about social order that if you took them seriously, opened up the idea that whatever the current order is, whether it's as 
wonderful as we could imagine, or whether it's uh, dismal and totalitarian, that those you could change the conditions and the and the circumstance and the outcome would change. Um, right. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I thought was interesting um, is you talk about media deserts. You know, there's so a large percentage of our not a large percent one out of five people in the country have no local paper, um, and you know, you're on the east side of the mountains and I have friends, I have family that lives on the east side of mountains. When I go over there, it's like, I'm, uh, I'm in a different world. You know, I'm, I'm not, we're not, we're not talking from the same basis of facts. And that's what you said in your, the book that immediate, if you have a media desert, you have this ability to spread disinformation, mm-hmm. you create polarization and you get people to hate the media. You know, they don't trust the media mm-hmm. um, yeah. and it and they need it more than anybody, anybody. Um, well, I mean, I think two two parts to your question is I'm hearing it. <clears throat> um, Pat, I mean, one one part is I think. I think, um, you know. In terms of I'll take the easy part first in terms of news deserts. I would point people to a great resource online. Um, uh, the website is U.S. News Deserts, so all one word, so like United States News and Deserts, U.S. News Deserts. Um, this is a website maintained by the uh, University of North Carolina Hussman School of Journalism and Media, and it allows, it's an interactive site. This is why I, I like it and recommend it. You can go in, it has sections on, do you live in a news desert? Who owns your newspaper? Where have newspapers disappeared? And these are all interactive. So you can punch in where you live and find out, do I live in a news desert? Uh, who, what newspapers? I was some, somewhat surprised. Um, you know, we are fortunate where I live to have a fantastic uh, weekly newspaper, the Metal Valley News. Don Nelson is the publisher. And he has an amazing team that, you know, I don't know how they do it, but they put out a high quality local newspaper that keeps people who read it informed about our local politics here. Um, I kind of thought we might be the only paper in the county which would qualify Okanagan County where I live as a news desert, but we aren't Um, using the US News Desert website, I was able to find, no, in fact, there's several other newspapers in Okanagan County. We're not a news desert um, by the formal definitions that are used. Um, That said, uh, our county is, by and large, a very conservative county. That affects everything here, Um, the school district, the the school board, um, conversations that we have. And that's, I think, a, just a reality of um, our current culture. Right. But that said, I want to go back, you know, you mentioned the reporting of Matt Tybee. Um, he wrote the foreword to uh, the yearbook a couple, a year ago. Um, Alan McLeod wrote the foreword to this year's yearbook. Alan McLeod's a senior reporter at Mint Press News and a media scholar himself. Uh, but going back to Tybee's forward, one of the things he noted was that in terms of media framing, the media have been remarkably uh, successful in convincing us to think about every news topic that we could in terms of red versus blue. 
team Republican versus team Democrat, as he talked about it in the foreword to the 2023 yearbook, I believe. Um, and, and I think he's right about that. I think that one of the news frames, and this goes back to the question you were asking, Greg, is a moment ago, how do you get people to engage skeptically or at least critically with news other than about things that they themselves see through the BS, right? And I think another way is to look at the framing and see like how almost, you know, it wouldn't be every story and every topic, but but a recurrent, overwhelmingly recurrent frame is like the politics of how will this play for Biden in the upcoming election, right? So we're talking about like genocide in Gaza. And the question is, is this going to hurt Biden's chances to get reelected? That's a political frame that narrows a human catastrophe with clear moral responsibility to its political consequences for our electoral system. Now, I'm not saying those aren't important, but it, there's notice how the framing focuses our attention to think of it in terms of party politics. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's a relentless trope of corporate news media that does a disservice to us as as uh, not just as uh, citizens who vote, but as members of our communities where we need to be able to talk to and have conversations with and find civil ways to disagree with people whose politics are different than our own. Yeah, you know, that's uh, that's especially true today. I mean, it's really. I'd call it, from a Marxist perspective, I'd call it the, the primary contradiction when you talk about media, and that is between the tribalism that's imposed upon people, you talked about red and blue, what we're talking about here is a two-party system, but yes. the tribalism that it, it, it creates, it frames for people, versus the diversity of opinions that are, uh, diversity of uh, information that's out there. It's vast with the internet today, you can you can find every opinion. If I want to find fellow Marxist opinion on anything, I'll find hundreds of things. I don't have time to read them all. <laughs> but they're marginalized because exactly the framing is just blue and yeah. red. Yeah. But even worse than that, even worse than that is on the left, people are locked into that. Mm -hmm. So that when you talk about solutions, which you, I, I commend you because I agree with you, solution journalism is what we need. There's a, a thousand solutions, but they all disappear when it comes back to we've got to get our guy elected, our woman mm -hmm. elected, our person yep. elected. So this and, tribalism, and the, it's a contradiction. Mm -hmm. And the particular version of that that I think is especially difficult on the left now is that we can't afford to critique Biden or look to alternatives to Biden because the stakes are too high. It's a luxury we can't afford right now. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that's a, that's a, at the very least, we could say that's a dismal uh, reflection of our current politics. I, I, can I do something a little out of the box here and ask a question of you two? Sure. And I want to ask Greg in particular, because you've mentioned Marxism a few times now, and it's been a puzzle to me my training as a sociologist, of course, I've I've read a ton of Marx. I've taught Marx. Um, I've taught Gramsci and people who come out of that tradition. Um, and it always strikes me that part of what we need in our culture now is, uh, and part of a critical media literacy is, is the Marxist notion of false consciousness. 
that you've been duped by whatever powers that be to not to to be unable to understand what your true interests in this in this current situation, whether it's historical or political, etc., what your true interests actually are. The trouble is, and so here's my question, and maybe Greg, I'd love to hear what you have to say about this, is you can't go around telling people that they're a victim of false consciousness. They get mad at you and they don't hear a thing you're saying. So my question is, how do you translate that very useful concept that we have from the Marxist tradition that I don't think, by the way, the notion of false consciousness, I think, does not necessarily commit us to pursuing communism as our goal. Um, so for anyone who Marx or Marxism is a red flag, third rail, can't go there. I think the concept of false consciousness has uh, an autonomy uh, uh, theoretically. But is there a way to raise questions about false consciousness without making people mad that you're saying I'm smarter than you and you've been duped? Well, I, I I don't think you can do that. That's kind of an academic question or a question that from an academic perspective. Yeah. I think you have to go back to the successful people and the successful people, the people like Lenin, who had an answer to that question. Lenin was an intellectual, really. He wasn't a worker. We know that. But his answer was you've got to have a political organism, a, a organization, if you will, institution. You got to build something. And of course, Gramsci believed that too. I mean, People, uh, Western academics, Western Marxists, they interpret Gramsci in a way that I find totally foreign. The guy was a member of the Communist Party of Italy. That was the vehicle he chose to build a movement to reach working people. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that kind of institutional organization that you're trying to build, we don't have it here. We just don't have it here. Right. Our politics are caught up in, uh, I don't know what they're caught up in. Uh, participatory democracy is the thing cooperatives this and that and the other but the notion of having a, a, a it's a vanguard party a party that is uh, holds true to a set of principles and tries to introduce that into the struggles and where they've always taken root in every case is in the working class yeah. and no one's even trying to do that today mm -hmm. I mean I come from working class background I grew up in a working class area it really isn't hard to talk to people. Working class people are people. There's assholes that are workers, and they're wonderful people. You got to go find the wonderful ones with the open minds and talk to them. So you know, I, I I just think we don't have. We are so far from what we've learned for a century and a half. The whole Marxist tradition. It's there in front of people. All you got to do is go look at it. But it's been rejected in this country since the McCarthy era, mm -hmm. and even more so today since the fall of. Uh, uh, European and uh, European communism. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, look at academia. You know, when I was growing up in, in, in college and in graduate school, if you were a sociologist, you were a Marxist. Yeah. Today, you can't round one up. You can't. <laughs> they're I'm they're sorry, still out can't. there. My undergraduate mentor was uh, was <laughs> definitely one. And well, I'm sure there are part of my but early training. It used to yeah. be the thing, and now, of course, it's not so yeah, much. Yeah, so it yeah. kind of answers the well, question. Well, except, except that, I mean, we have all this polling data showing that young people are not afraid of socialism. Exactly, right. exactly. The objective conditions, right. as we Marxists say, is is there. The subjective conditions are absent. Yeah. And so because, your question is, how do we, we have, change it? Yeah, in part because we have this broken two-party system and a media mm -hmm. that excludes any third-party candidate from debates. 
I, I, I mean, I, I like to get better than that. That is the answer to your question. Essentially, that's the that's what's locked says locked us in. I mean, you can talk to people who profess to be Marxist. In the end, they fall back on the elections. They fall. Look at Noam Chomsky. That's Pat's hero. Don't say anything bad about Chomsky. He he endorsed uh, Biden. You know, yeah. yeah, Chomsky endorsed Biden, and he's for that. I mean, it's it's that's not a successful formula for changing this world. We, we've got to know a couple of young men that we really like a lot uh, who formed a podcast called The Midwest Marxists and uh, Eddie and uh, Carlos. Carlos is completing his PhD in philosophy. Anyway, he's they're in Southern Illinois. And I don't know if you know, SIU, Southern Illinois, is one of the poorest parts of our, it's like Appalachia in, in the, and you know, Eddie was talking about going out on the, um, uh, you know, on a, on a strike line with all these people that are 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 just redneck Trump supporters, and they had ninety percent of what they were talking about. They they had agreement, you know, mm -hmm. but because of the polarization, uh, that you know, you, and um, people can't nurture these movements. We try to get these movements with the Wall Street movement and the. Mm -hmm. AOC and all the, and they're thwarted you know they're 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 stopped they're dangerous because that's going to be where the change comes from is the movement so right right yeah. but but the but the blockades the hurdles the pitfalls in the way some of them are constituted through media so it's fox it's sinclair it's newsmax right um feeding people this kind of fire hose of, I don't know whether we want to call it disinformation or not, but it's certainly propaganda. It works. Um, and there's, and there's hunger for it. There's uh, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, one of the big questions that I cannot answer, but that the project attempts to at least work on is how do you get people to consider alternatives, right? Consider alternative news sources, consider alternative political options, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. And what, look, we know the whole point of propaganda is to basically appeal to emotion and bypass the critical thinking process, right? And so the whole, and by contrast, the whole point of critical media literacy is to say, we need to slow down and look deeply here and not take things at their surface appearance or their face value. We need to consider how power dynamics are infused in this, even if the power is submerged and not obvious. And when we do that, you start seeing the world in in a new way, in a different way that maybe changes your perspective. And that, and that goes back to your false consensus effect. For years, I taught survey courses at junior college for psychology, mm -hmm. uh, general psychology, abnormal uh, and uh, developmental. And you would do a whole section on cognitive bias, all yeah. the various kinds. And I, you know, what I what I am struck with is is I would teach this, and I know so much about it, but I'm I'm susceptible to it, even though wow. I know about this, I'm susceptible to these <laughs> cognitive biases, and that just is uh, just always we're, we're... always amazed me that I, somehow I'd be above it all, and I'm not. I'm uh -huh. Well, critical thinking skills are crucial, but we're human too, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and we're passionate and emotional and and it's striking that balance. But yeah, we talk about that in a different book that um, people have uh, connected with the project uh, uh, put out a year ago. We, we put out a book called The Media and Me, which is a guide 
to critical media literacy for young people. Mm -hmm. um, and we talk about, we have a whole chapter on uh, uh, critical thinking and logical fallacies um, yeah. as kind of a, a, a foundation for critical media literacy, right? And you can then work back and forth between the critical thinking kind of the you know the keystones of critical thinking and and examples from contemporary media and you can unpack in a way that we hope you know we tried to make it accessible to um, high school and junior middle high school aged people um, how these things work and the whole metaphor was uh, looking beneath the surface right slowing down and looking deeper um, and I think that's a message that's probably useful not just for young people but maybe for you know, in such a, in such a highly politicized, um, siloed, you know, team Democrat, team Republican, inculcated uh, society, it may be useful for us all to engage in a little bit of that. Greg, you want to say any it's final really thoughts before we send uh, yeah, I, send our I, friend I, Andy off 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 away? Yeah, so he can get back to his work. No, I just really appreciate Andy coming on with us. And I think uh, uh, we also need to think hard about maybe trying to get Mike Elk on yeah. and, uh, mm -hmm. in the future. He would be a good, uh, a good person. But keep up the good work. It's great work. It's essential work. Like so much really, really good political work. It's somewhat thankless work, but uh, it's so essential. And, and as I say, Mike Elk was tickled. I mean, he sent this around to his friends that he was one of the top 25. So you know you're making an impact. You're, you're getting, you're getting exposing people to, to some of these essential people that we have to have. We have to have them. Yeah. No, we have, thank you. Thank you, Greg. And thank you, Pat, for providing a platform to talk about uh, the project and its work. And, um, and yeah, ultimately this is all, the whole effort is, uh, you know, encouraging people to, to, prepare themselves to be media literate in a critical sort of way, and then putting a spotlight for a, a, a little bit longer than they often get on some of these independent journalists and independent news outlets without whom we'd be truly in the dark, right? Indeed, um, indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. We'll have thanks, you back Pat. when you finish your next book and we'll keep, keep we'll, we'll start becoming friends here. So I'd love great. to join you guys again. Thank you, All Pat. Right. Thank you, Greg. Thanks. Thanks, Andy.